You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Van. Zandon and Corey Janoff. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors, everyone. Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff. Hey yo. Hey yo. We had a very exciting day in the office the ever the other day. We got access to the MGMA salary data for 2020, which is the most recent data. Um, we're kind of obsessed with it. We like to look at the numbers and see where salaries ended up and you could like break it down by region and specialty. And then, you know, it's really helpful for us and for our clients to kind of give everyone a benchmark for what we might expect people to be compensated for. It is very granular and, you know, there's a lot of different factors that can affect compensation. So we want to be really careful not to like assume that, you know, the median salary for an anesthesiologist in the Southern region is exactly what you should get paid. Like that's just not really how it works. But it does give us a way to kind of look at the data and see what other people are getting paid. So we just wanted to take a minute today to, to talk about that a little bit, talk about like what the data says, what you can look at, like how you can use it, all of that kind of stuff. So without any further ado, Corey, you want to give us a little background on that? Yes. And I think just some initial notes here, like this data, it's not every single physician in the country. It's it's a voluntary survey. So for some specialties, they just don't have enough respondents to even provide very good data. And just from a statistical research standpoint, there aren't a ton of data points to, to begin with. So I think there's a really wide variance in the data. So it's not like this is the end all be all. If you're not getting paid at least the median salary, then you're underpaid. It, it, it is really... Um, I think, you know, to use uh, science terms, maybe statistically, uh, you know, insignificant or, or it's it's not, I don't think they, they just, they need more to, to have a really complete picture, but it does give us a good idea and uh, of what's going on across different specialties. And I don't think there's a ton of surprises. Like I think everyone's kind of familiar with what, what the higher paying specialties are, um, but I think it is still pretty pretty neat to see some of the data across the board and, and academic versus private practice. No surprise there, private practice docs generally make a little bit more than academic physicians. Um, but it's, it's not all about the, uh, the paycheck. There's other pros and cons to different types of, of job settings for sure. So absolutely. What are some, you want to start with some of the observations, Rochelle, and we can just sure. go from there. Yeah. So like Corey said, not a, not a ton of surprises here, but we did look at the data and break it down by academic versus private practice. And in academics, it definitely seems like the surgical specialties make the most money. Most uh, like neurosurgeons kind of top it out, um, averaging in like the high six figures for income. And then down towards the bottom, we have like pediatric specialists which make quite a bit less, at least as, as initially as assistant professors, they often make under $200,000 per year. And then for full professor roles, they might make a little bit more. 
It looked like geriatrics physicians also make kind of on the lower end, especially on the East Coast for like full professor roles even. And then, you know, we have a couple of of random miscellaneous ones that not many people really necessarily go down these paths, but like neuromuscular neurologists, clinical pathologists, infectious um, infectious disease pediatricians, folks like that still tend to make on the in the low 200s, even as like a full professor at an academic institution. So I think a lot of times when people are deciding about like what kind of position they're going to go into or what specialty they're going to go into, they know a lot of this. Like if if you're deciding to be a, a pediatrician on the front end, you you probably know that you're not going to make quite the level of income that maybe someone who's working with adults is going to be making. So I think it just makes sense to to go in with your eyes open to be fully aware of that, to think about the pros and cons of those things. Like maybe it allows you to practice medicine the way that you want to practice medicine. And maybe that's more important to you. Um, and I think that's totally fine. But I think that it, it's really helpful just to to have a good sense of what this looks like. And then in private practice, it's really similar. We have pediatricians generally making the least and then neurosurgeons making the most, followed by other surgical specialties most of them even starting out all over like $300,000 per year or so. Um, so again, you know you know that you're going to make a lot more money as a surgeon or, you know, as one of the, the higher paid specialties than you do as a, a pediatrician or someone working with older folks. Yeah. Any thoughts there? No, I think no surprises. The I think everyone's aware of that information. I thought, you know, yep. the, the even at the lowest end of the spectrum on the surgical specialties, pretty much everyone was over $300,000 for, for average earnings um, on both academic and private practice, whereas some of the, the uh, some other lower earning specialties, you know, they're, they're even under 200,000 for, for where their, their income level is. So it's a big disparity there. And then of course, at the top end of the spectrum, some of those surgical specialties are, are towing into the million dollar figures, um, on average high six figures for, for many of them. But, um, I think one, the one thing that I wanted to, to highlight in this and maybe spend a little bit of time on is just geographic data. So we, we've touched on it a little bit before in previous episodes, but big cities, you know, medicine is, is unique uh, compared to other occupations of that you generally can make more money in less populated areas. Whereas, you know, in other walks of life, it usually goes the opposite. You make more money in big cities, less money in small cities. But in medicine, I think just supply and demand, there's more doctors to pluck from in big cities. Uh, there's less doctors to choose from in small cities. So they've got to pay more in in those cities to attract talent there. Um, you know, doctors just, just from a 30,000 foot view, uh, and, and this isn't concrete for every single practice. It's just, we're talking averages here. So... Uh, but physicians in the Midwest and the South, the, the flyover states, if you will, tend to make a little bit more than doctors on the coasts, on the East and West Coast. Generally, the more populated cities are on the East and West Coasts, and the less populated areas are in the Midwest and the South. Um, and then in private practice, there wasn't for, for large cities versus small cities. So we broke it down by metropolitan areas greater than a million people and less than a million people. Um, there's not really much academic data for the less than a million because there aren't really any big teaching hospitals in small cities. Um, 
So it's pretty much just private practice data that we had there. But in private practice, again, this is just averages. And again, the data points are small, so it's not going to be set in stone for all settings. But in general, doctors in smaller cities tend to earn a little bit more than the doctors in the larger cities. And, you know, the concept of geographic arbitrage, do you want to talk about that a little bit, Rochelle? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the huge flip side of this pay is cost of living. So, you know, in these less populated areas, a lot of times cost of living is much, much lower. And that's something that's much more easily like documented. We know that a house in Iowa does not cost as much as a house in the Bay Area in California. It just doesn't. Um, and I actually looked up online, I think on Zillow, that the, the, the median home price in California was about 800000 and the median home price in Iowa was under 200000 That's so. insane. Yeah, that is such a huge difference. So if we think about that, we think, okay, we're probably going to make more in Iowa, and we're probably going to pay a lot more for everything in California. Like that makes a big difference. And it doesn't mean that automatically you need to work in Iowa. It's just a matter of like, you know, how are we making our choices? What matters to us? You know, do we want to live in a big fancy house? If so, maybe we don't live in California. Um, and we're I'm kind of picking on California because, you know, real estate is notoriously very expensive there. But you can say that about a lot of coastal regions. And then the other thing is that taxes on the state level are very different when we're talking about like these coastal regions versus Midwestern areas and Southern areas. A lot of times you end up paying quite a bit less in like state and local taxes when you are in those like lower cost of living areas. So there's so many things that stack up to create that geographic arbitrage, which is basically just your ability to pick and choose where you work in a way that's very, very financially beneficial to you if you want to do that. And some people do it just for, you know, a period of time. Like maybe I'm from Southern California and I want to end up back there near my family eventually. But I know that if I choose to work in, I keep saying Iowa, but I actually have a, a client that's got a job in Iowa and he's making a lot of money there. But anyway, so, you know, you could choose to work in Iowa for five, six, seven, eight years and really create like a, a good nest egg for yourself. Maybe take care of your student loans, all of those kinds of things and get yourself off on a really good start and, and then maybe settle down where you ultimately want to be long term. It also is kind of, you know, an opportunity to be a little bit adventurous. But again, you know, everyone has to make those decisions for themselves. And I think for a lot of people, it matters more to be close to family, to be living in a place that really fits their values or anything like that. So obviously, there's a lot of things that you consider when you're taking, especially that first job out of training. I just keep thinking of that scene from Field of Dreams where he's like, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. It's Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> Great movie. He's cutting by down the way. his cornfield. Book, I love that yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. But yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's all it comes down to, really. Like, you, you really can make quite a bit more money in some of these areas, and you definitely won't pay as much for anything. Yeah. We'll talk about this a little more in, in a bit, but just math, like <laughs> fi fi personal finance. Um, in terms of just like the, coming up with a plan to achieve your goals, it's a simple math equation. Money coming in, money going out, what's left over? The more money that comes in, the less that goes out, the more you have left over to do things with. Save for retirement, kids' college, pay down debt, whatever. Go on fun vacations. 
Um, so if you're in a lower cost of living area and you're earning more money, that delta is greater. If you're living in a higher cost of living area, more money is going out and all else being equal, most likely less money is coming in, you know, for same specialties. Um, so it, it's, you have a smaller margin for, for flexibility. So, um, obviously money isn't everything. You gotta make your decisions based on job setting, lifestyle, uh, whatnot, proximity to family, but, um, but something to consider. Like we've got, uh, like you said earlier, Rochelle, a number of clients who, you know, they go take a job and for lack of, uh, not to pick on anywhere, the middle of nowhere and make a bunch of money for a few years, knock out their student loans, save up for a home down payment. And then they move to the, the major city where they want to ultimately be in and buy the house, settle down and, and, and go from there. Yeah. Which just, you know, makes that supply issue a constant problem. Like you do have quite a bit of turnover in, in areas that are less populated too. So they're always looking for those, you know, new meat, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think when we're looking at all of these numbers and all of this stuff, it's like, okay, so uh, now we know what do we do with it? And I do think that to a certain extent, like knowledge is power. I think when you're looking at that first job out of training, especially like that's a good opportunity to negotiate and like get in at a level that you want to get in at. Um, it doesn't always work. It's not like every job that you are looking at is going to have the ability to negotiate on salary. There are some places that you may choose to work at where like the salary is very structured. Like if you are an associate professor with one year of experience, you make this dollar amount, which can be very helpful because it's very transparent and you know like that you're on a level playing field. And so like that can be very beneficial. But I do think that like if you're in a position where you can negotiate on salary, you should. That's expected. I think that that's very normal. That's part of the process. There's a lot of things that you can ask for if you feel like, you know, you're not being compensated quite what you want to be. Sure, you can negotiate on salary. But you can also negotiate on things like sign-on bonuses, like student loan assistance. If you have student loans, like, hey, I have this huge student loan burden. This is a big deal to me financially. How can you support me in like making these go away? Like, what is it that you have available for me? Um, relocation expenses is another kind of minor one, but always beneficial to just get a little bit of help with those moving expenses, which can add up. Um, I've even had clients, especially moving to those less populated or populated areas with physician spouses, kind of negotiate a position for their spouse as well. Like, hi, I'm in a specialty that's not very well represented at your hospital. You really, really need my help. I also have a, a, a spouse that is looking for a job in the same area. Like, what can you do for both of us? What can that look like? Um, and, and if they need you bad enough, a lot of times they can make that happen. So there's a lot of opportunities for that kind of thing too. Um, and just keep in mind that like, even if you do have some information about pay and like median pay and all of that kind of stuff, it varies dramatically from employer to employer. So don't expect like just to, to be able to get an average salary right out of the, the gate. Um, when you're starting practice, you're probably going to fall towards the bottom end of that spectrum, just depending on where you're landing. Um, one thing that you can do is that like if you're looking at a prospective employer, Ask if they will share what other physicians in the practice make. 
I think there used to be this taboo that we like didn't talk about what we paid people or, you know, people didn't share that information. And that is still true in some with some employers. But with other employers, it's becoming more and more common to share that information just for the sake of transparency. And you should absolutely be asking if that's something that you can do, especially if there's like a partnership buy-in or something like that. Like, you know, if, if that's the track you want to follow, it's very helpful for you to know what that compensation might look like in the future. You want to weigh in here? understanding yeah. the compensation structure. Like, is it mm-hmm. pure salary? Is it salary plus bonus based on how the department performs? Is, it, is there an RVU component you know so you, you document your your notes better you enter it into the emrs better work more you, you can generate more rvus make more money is, is there like an hourly wage component or a shift component like we see this a lot with emergency medicine docs you, you know you're you're more or less shift workers you're paid per shift and the more shifts you work the more money you make and there's opportunities to make more if you so choose um, and just kind of understanding the total compensation structure. Also, don't just fixate on the salary. Focus on the other fringe benefits that are offered. What's the retirement contributions that your employer is making? You know, one, and this is more common at, say, hospitals, but, you know, I guess private practices too. Like if you're at a hospital, you know, one hospital might only put 3% into your 403B as a employer match, but another you know, they might put like $30,000 away for retirement for you. That's real money. Like that's, you know, it's, it's going towards your, your goals um, of, of retiring one day. And same with private practices. Do they have a 401k set up? Do the, do they have it set up with profit sharing? So all the doctors or partners max out the profit sharing component at 58,000 a year, or do, are you only able to put 19,500 a year in, or, or do they just have a simple IRA that you can only put 13,500 into, you know, what, what's available to you? Disability insurance, what do they provide you? Um, you know, do, will they reimburse you? We see this at a lot of places. They'll reimburse you for your private disability insurance policy, which is great. We all know doctors need disability insurance. And if you can get your employer to pay for, for your coverage, especially if it's a private policy outside of work that you control and you take with you when you leave, even better. So ask about all that stuff and get a picture of the total compensation, not just what's my salary and go, you know, go from there. And that's something that's really hard to quantify when we're looking at numbers broadly, but it makes so much of a difference for like you and your personal financial picture. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. I will say that I feel like I have a lot of female clients who are kind of afraid that they're going to be underpaid. Like there's a lot of research out there that says that there's a wage gap in medicine and that it's more significant in medicine than it even is in the general public, which is very disheartening. I think some of that might come down to like choices that we make about practicing medicine, like what specialty are we going to do? But a lot of this is also controlled for that. So I think knowing a lot and educating yourself a lot about what average compensations are, about how compensation works at your employer, it gives you a little bit of peace of mind to know that you're not being like undersold or underbid, you know, and also negotiating can give you that that same sense of like, almost like taking control of the situation. Like I, I have some control over how competitively I'm being paid. 
Um, so we just want people to be confident about their choices, you know, and happy in, in the situation that they end up in. And ideally, like the more that you know about your compensation, the better you'll feel about it. That's kind of the goal for me with my clients a lot of the time. I think the more people talk about it, the less awkward it is to talk about, you know, for yeah. parents generation talking money is kind of a taboo subject, but in the millennials and Gen Zers where all of our personal lives are on the internet for everyone to see, you know, what did you earn in a given year? It's maybe not as uncomfortable of a conversation. And you can ask some of your, you know, specifically for the people coming out of training and going into practice, ask some of your residents uh, or, or co-fellows that were, you know, a year or two ahead of you, what they're earning in their, you know, job, or if you're considering joining the same practice, I'm sure they'll be happy to discuss some of that information with you and uh, give you an idea of what you can expect from it. Absolutely. The, I guess, where are we at here? Math, 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 my math. favorite subject. <laughs> Actually, I was really good at math growing up. Um, it wasn't so much on the, uh, reading and writing side of it. I like to read, but, uh, but yeah, not the fastest reader and English wasn't my, wasn't my specialty, but I was good with numbers. Um, with the financial planning, like you can't get around the laws of math. So all else being equal two doctors with disparate incomes can't live the same lifestyle and have the same financial goals and aspirations. And, you know, using opposite ends of the spectrum here, we talked earlier, you know, the surgical specialties tend to make the most, pediatricians tend to make the least. So, you know, an orthopedic surgeon and a pediatrician, if, you know, you have an orthopedic surgeon making $800,000 a year, they can afford a more expensive house and to take nicer vacations while still potentially saving enough to reach their goals and retirement and having a vacation home and paying for their kids to go to college. Whereas a pediatrician making 230000 per year can't live that same lifestyle and still achieve all those goals within the same time frame. Now, I've seen it work the opposite way, where the pediatrician making 230000 a year is disciplined, lives within their means, prioritizes saving, and saves enough to reach their financial goals and can ultimately become financial independent faster than the orthopedic surgeon who thinks he's this big shot doctor and decides to spend all his money on all the luxuries in life and doesn't save anything for retirement or kids college. And, you know, it, 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 so it's in both scenarios, like you, you got to live within your means. You got to make sure you're prioritizing your goals in order to reach those goals. Now, one thing to point out, the higher income earning doctor has the ability to make more mistakes and catch up and make up for it than the lower income earning doctor. You know, if you make early in your career as, you know, again, making 800,000 a year as an orthopedic surgeon, if you, you know, spend too much on a house or buy too nice of a car, you know, you can course correct and make up for it if you get disciplined midway. Whereas, you know, someone making 200,000 a year maybe won't have that same capability. So just really keep that in mind. Yeah, we there's the blanket umbrella of doctor and the stereotype that doctors are rich. And, you know, compared to the general population, even the lowest income earning doctor is still in about the top 10 or maybe even top five percentile of income earners in America. 
Um, it may not feel like that, but it, you are, <laughs> whether you believe it or not. Um, so compared to the general population, yes, you're rich, but compared, you know, even, you know, compared to some of your peers in the medicine field, you, you may be at the bottom of the ladder from a, from a income standpoint, and therefore you can't live the same lifestyle. It's like I was joking with, with a friend the other day or you know, a couple months ago, it's, um, you know, you look at, you know, the top one percenters in America, they make over like four or $500,000 a year, but you know, the bottom of the 1% and the top of the 1%, you know, you're talking 400,000 versus 400 million, you know, or billions of dollars per year. <laughs> so they're, they're even in the top 1%, there's a wide disparity um, so it's, you know, you can't compare yourself to, to everyone and you got to keep your expectations in line with, with where you stand. I think you're on mute, Rochelle. I think it's the first time that's happened to you. Usually it's me who mutes the mic and forgets to, to unmute. <laughs> Darn it. I was on mute. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know, repeating what you were saying about like, I think a lot of my clients that are more concerned about money are potentially those that don't earn quite as much, but they're also so much more frugal. And and I try to tell them like, hey, you feel like you're poor. You're not. <laughs> so you know, even with your $200,000 income, even with like that just sounds ridiculous. But with your $200,000 income, you can do a lot and you can accomplish a lot. So um, I think it's just a matter of, of prioritizing and making sure that your long-term goals are just as important to you as your short-term goals. Like, just don't be super short-sighted. It's not all about the car you have right now and, you know, the house that you live in right now. It's also about, like, freedom to make choices in the future about how much you work and when you work and when you can retire and what you can do in retirement. You know, if we're living all of doing all these fancy things right now and we retire and we just don't have the money to sustain that lifestyle, that's a bummer. Like, I want to go on vacation in retirement. I think most of you do, too. So like that, that's the goal. Just think about your future self and how happy you will be at age, whatever it is, when you decide to retire, when you can go to Europe or wherever it is that you want to go. But don't completely deprive yourself today either, too. No, you know, you have a little I'm fun saying. along the way. But yeah, no, I know, <laughs> of course. Um, but yeah, make sure you're find the balance, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> put a little away for today or put a little away for tomorrow. Have a little for today. But, uh, you know, we've talked before uh, for, for most of you, try and make sure you're saving at least 20% of your gross income for retirement purposes. If you can do that starting early in your career. You're setting yourself up for success to be able to retire at a reasonable age. If you're getting started at that savings rate later than your mid-30s, or if you want to retire before your early 60s, math, save more. It's pretty simple. Spend <laughs> <It's>, less. <laughs> um, yeah. It, uh, money coming in, money going out, what's left over. Yeah, that's it's it's just a math equation. But prioritize your goals first and foremost. Make sure you're paying yourself first, setting money aside to reach your various goals, and then whatever's left over, spend it. Have fun. Don't feel dirty about it. You know, if you're putting aside enough for retirement, you're putting aside for enough for the kids' college. You've got the student loans eliminated or on track to be eliminated. The mortgage is on track to be paid off when you want it to be. 
you got extra money to spend, go nuts, have fun, treat yourself. So yeah, don't feel bad. Yeah. Treat yourself. <laughs> don't feel bad about it. Um, because you, you got everything else on track. Of course you could further accelerate those goals if you wanted to, but up to you, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, anything else you want to cover today, Rochelle? No, I love how cheesy and corny we always get, Corey. Yeah. It's all about it's feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if any of you do have questions on this stuff, or I know we have a, a, an internal um, physician, uh, ugh, what am I looking at? Contract review service. That's the word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's late in the week. My brain's not firing on all cylinders. But yeah, so if, if any of you do are looking at, at jobs or, or job changes and you want to connect, um, with someone in our firm to to discuss compensation and how it stacks up or or anything else relating to um, workplace benefits etc feel free to get in touch and uh, we'll see how we can help you so absolutely all right have a good one everyone yep we'll talk to you later we would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanen Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanen. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Finity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our financial clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog thanks for listening to this episode of financial clarity for doctors by finity group llc